Father, thank you again for this great opportunity to gather as Eternal City Church. Father, to be with men and women who love you. Father, men and women who are desperately in need of Jesus more than we all know. Father, thank you for the offer of forgiveness. What a fantastic offer to be forgiven of all our sins, that there might be no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Father, I pray that that reality of debts forgiven would transfer into us forgiving others their debts against us. Father, I pray that tonight as we get into some practical uh, truths about forgiveness, some practical helps, I pray, Father, that you would be here by your Spirit. Father, would you please speak to each heart? I pray that we could grow from tonight. I pray that we would see Jesus in a more glorious light, uh, see him for who he really is, and may it change and transform us. Help us to forgive others their debts, Father, as you have forgiven us a massive, infinite debt in Christ. We thank you. Thank you for your word. Pray that it would be powerful and effective, sharper than a two-edged sword, and we pray that we would be helpfully cut and then healed. In Jesus' name, everyone said, amen. So we are, we are going to do forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors again, part two. Here's why. Because last week, there was just no way that I could have said all that needed said. And really, you can't do two weeks and say all that needs said. However, there are some times that a message goes out and there is so much feedback that a second message is warranted, like a part two. And I got more feedback from last week's message than I think I've gotten from all the messages. That's a bit of exaggeration, but you get the point. (laughs) There was a lot of feedback and there was a lot of questions and there was a lot of uh, further thinking happening. And so I wanted to do a part two And my hope is that as we do a shorter part two, we could get together and pray. And this is so appropriate because there's so few of us. Uh, The fewer, I think, the more conducive to prayer. And so let's look at forgiven to forgive part two. Um, How many found last week helpful and challenging? Anyone that heard it? Okay, good. Uh, Part two is going to be more practical. So yes, we will get into the scriptures. We will definitely exposit quite a few texts. Uh, That's what I think a a sermon should be. However, I want to get into some real practical stuff. And so here's an invite to you. Since we're small like this, if I say something that you want to respond to, let's do that. Since there's so few of us, just like put your hand up or yell it out. I won't be offended. I'll find my way back. And so if you got a question or a comment, we could do that since we're small. Is that cool? All right, so it could be interactive. So we are, again, in Matthew, Sermon on the Mount, and in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus launches into prayer, and he is telling his disciples specifically how to pray. And we know it's his disciples because he teaches his disciples to say, Our Father. And only those who are in Christ, connected to Jesus, Jesus' disciples, can truly call God their Father. And so though... Many people pray the Our Father. We know that only those united to Christ, those who are 
uh, in Christ, uh, Paul's language all throughout the epistles, can truly call God their Father because Jesus is the true and unique Son of God, and by our being united to Him, we are now sons and daughters of God, united to the unique Son. Okay, so forgiven to forgive, Jesus tells us in the Lord's Prayer that we need to be about forgiving others as we have been forgiven. The language that's specifically used is as we also have, past tense, forgiven our debtors. And so this is an invite for you to ask God to forgive you your sins. Now, when I was a new Christian, I found myself praying this specific verse 12 of Matthew 6 all the time. And I had a lot of sins to confess. And, you know, once I planted a church and started studying the Bible, I don't really have any more sins to confess. I'm actually righteous. And only the two people that know I'm being sarcastic and joking or laughing, and the rest of you are like, you're a heretic. I'm kidding. I, I have a lot of sins to confess. But what I don't necessarily do anymore is kneel and then try to go through the list like an extensive soul-searching to find every sin that I committed that day. Um, whether that's good or bad, I don't do that anymore. However, when I sin and God pricks me or shows me that was a sin, that was wrong, immediately, I don't even waste time, I don't wait till the night, I go right into talking to God about that. Like, God, that was messed up. I am sorry. Forgive me. And, and I want to encourage that practice. It's not wrong to wait to the end of the day and then try to go through the list. It's not wrong. Forgive us our debts and, and try to remember. But I would encourage, man, keep as much short accounts with God as possible. I think that's one of the things that Paul meant when he said, pray without ceasing or pray continually. I think it just means you are in a state of possible prayer at any moment, at any time. And you go from your thoughts to prayer kind of in and out, in and out all day. Is that your experience? Do you kind of talk to God? You know how there's the voice in your head that's always talking? It's you. But you're always talking to yourself and you're always having a conversation with you. This is why Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said that the most influential person in your life is you. Because no one talks to you more than you do. It's true. And so what you're telling yourself, what you talk to yourself about, what you, like if you say to yourself, I'm an idiot about 70 times a day, you idiot, you're an idiot. No one's hearing it but you. You're going to start to believe you're an idiot. You're that influential. What if your inner voice, that inner conversation that never stops, it's, it's happening when you go to bed, it happens as soon as you wake up. What if that inner conversation could be turned into prayer? I wonder if that's what the inner conversation is actually about. And because of sin and because of uh, us being sinners, uh, Jackie brought up a helpful theological point in her prayer last week. Uh, it could be easily summed up like this. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. The sin is a symptom of a deeper disease. It's called sin. Now, we are born again, and so that depravity that we once knew fully or totally is no longer total. But Romans 7 tells us, even as Christians, we have indwelling sin. And I think good, credible theologians are right when they say it's found in the body. 
Who will deliver me from this body of death? I beat my body to bring it into submission. It would seem that the body itself houses the indwelling sin. Because when you die and your body goes down and your spirit or soul returns to the Lord who gave it, you're free from sin. When you get a new resurrected body, that new resurrected body is without sin. And you can make a good, credible case for the sin that's indwelling a believer is actually housed in the body. Because when this body dies, you're free. Okay? Does that mean the body is evil? No, because Jesus had a body. And Jesus was the most holy, righteous person who ever walked the face of the earth. So the body is not sinful. We're not um, dualists where everything spirit is good, you know, the Gnostics, and then everything matter and physical is evil. That's not true. God looked at all that he made, and it was very physical. And what? It was very good. Okay, that's a lot to, to say as introduction. But I want to say this to you now. On the basis or foundation in the Bible, we are to practice forgiveness, and it's always based on our forgiveness. Every time you see a command to forgive someone in the Bible, very close to it, you will see that it's because you have been forgiven. Here, here's an example. Ephesians 4.32. You know, Ephesians 1 through 3 is all the theology, and then 4 to 6 moves into very practical, do this because of what I just taught you. So four is the practical part. So Paul's just kind of given commands and he says, be kind to one another. It's a command. I like that one. Tender-hearted. I like that. You're supposed to be tender with one another. Tender-hearted. Forgiving one another. And then he always backs it up with, as God in Christ forgave you. You see, we forgive because God in Christ forgave us. That's always the foundation of our being commanded to forgive others. It's because we are forgiven people. That was last week's sermon. But I want to show you that uh, in Ephesians specifically, it's always a do this, but not this. Or you used to do this, now do this. And so the next verse, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. The verse before that was this. Let all bitterness... Wrath, anger, and clamor, and slander be put away from you. So if you used to be, or are still, bitter, you're full of wrath, you're, you're like an easily angered person. Clamor, you're a slanderer, put them away. Put it in the drawer, shut the drawer. Along with all malice. Malice means an intent to hurt people. Put it away. And then the next verse is, instead of that, this be kind to one another. So in other words, this is what you were before Jesus. Now this is in Jesus who you are supposed to be. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ forgave you. Very practical. Forgiveness lived out daily. So on a daily basis, we have to practice forgiveness every day. Is that your experience? Like you are wronged every single day. Your wife wrongs you. Your husband wrongs you, your kids wrong you, your coworkers wrong you, your boss wrongs you, someone on the TV has wronged you from their opinion. And you're constantly being wronged, if you will. And you are commanded by God to forgive everyone. Why? Because God in Christ has forgiven you. Now, practically, I think this is very helpful. 
Tim Lane has, has been a great help to me, uh, especially for this message, but even last week too. And this is just practical forgiveness. So forgiveness, I want you to think of it not as an event, but a process. So there is a time when you say, now you are forgiven, and right here you weren't. But forgiveness is a process, not a one-time event. What does that mean? That means that there are people who have wronged you so deeply that yes, you have forgiven them once, but then you have to continue to forgive them because it's going to come back up to you. It's the, the, the memory of what had happened is going to come back. And you have to continue to work that forgiveness out. How, how do we do that? Well, Tim Lane says three things. One, you have to say, I will not bring up this offense again or use it against you. So if you're bringing up past stuff to someone, that's an evidence that you didn't forgive them of it. Because you're, you're bringing it up again. That means you're still holding on to it. It's still lodged in you in an unforgiving way. It's, it's like shrapnel stuck in you that hasn't been pulled out or surgically removed. If you bring it up again or use it against that person, that means it's not really forgiven. So you forgiving someone else, I want you to remember, the process is going to look like you not bringing up the offense again or using it against the other person. Okay. Secondly, I will not bring it up to others in gossip or malign you because of it. So if you're bringing up the offense to other people in gossip to malign them, that means to hurt them in some way or to pay them back in some way, you haven't really forgiven them. So you have to consciously choose, I am not going to bring this up to other people as well, the offense. I'm not going to bring it back up to you ever again. And I'm not going to bring it up to other people ever again. Now, here's the hard one. Number three, I will not bring it up to myself and dwell on this offense. That's the hard one. And this, I think, is the process one because it's going to come back to you. It's going to come back either because they did it again and you're going to remember again, you just did this yesterday, right? Or it may have happened a year ago or two years ago, but they did it again. And so now you're going to have to forgive it again, and then the old one's going to be brought back up, isn't it? So not only is there a new, i got to forgive you again, but now you got to deal with the old one. And now it can resurface. So you got to say, I'm not going to bring this up to myself, and I'm not going to dwell on this offense. And how do you do that, right? Like, that's the question. So when it comes into your mind, practically, what do you do? And, and here's the best help I can give you. You need to take it to the only one that you really can take it to, and that's God. Now, let me qualify that. In a biblical counseling situation or in like a non-gossip situation, I think you can bring it up to other people because your intent is to get help. Your intent is not to gossip or to malign. Your motives in bringing it up to someone else is very important, okay? So if you do bring it back up to someone, why are you bringing it back up? Are you bringing it back up to someone you know who is not going to spread it, who is mature enough to help you through it, who is willing to pray with you and give you some steps and help you work through it in discipleship, biblical counseling? I mean, that's an appropriate context and motivation to get help to bring it back up. But 
that person, and that's me right now, is going to help you to say, you've you got to not bring this up to yourself anymore. And the way you begin that process is to bring it up to God in prayer. And say, God, this hurts. And you can tell him what it feels like. You can tell him what the result is. You can tell him how you're processing it. And he is definitely able to receive that. And then you can ask him for the help to not bring it up to them again. You can ask him for the help to not bring it up to others again. And then you will probably have to ask this more than once. Help me not to bring it up to myself again. And so you work through. And if listen, if that takes years, better years than not at all. Like if you have to crawl through this process of forgiveness, remember, not an event, but a process, crawl. Right? Isn't it better to crawl than to say, I'm just not going to forgive, or I can't forgive, or, and, and you let bitterness take over you. Bring it up to God in prayer. Augustine, the great church father, said, Command what you will and give what you command. Command what you will and give what you command. That means God can command you to do things that in your own strength you can't do. And so you can go to God and rightfully say, I cannot forgive this person. Help. That would be appropriate. And God will come in with his energy, with his power to help you to forgive. And the more you remind yourself of how much you've been forgiven... I would even say in prayer, God, you have forgiven me more than I realize. Help me to forgive this much smaller offense. And you crawl if need be. It's okay to crawl. It's a process. So remind yourself when you're struggling with forgiveness, this is going to be a process. And especially, now listen close, especially if it's a repeat offender. Like when you live with someone, husband, wife, children, co-workers, like the people you see regularly, they're going to be repeat offenders. And so they're going to be constantly offending you, and you're going to have to be constantly forgiving them. But listen, you're also offending people too, so you're not the innocent one. Like you're, the, you're also in this as a sinner. But it's helpful to say, I will choose to forgive you over and over and over. You remember last week, Peter said, how many times? Seven? What was his answer? Right, 70 times 7 or 70 times, depending on the translation. And Jesus wasn't saying that many times exactly. He was saying over and over and over and over again. But I think it's helpful to realize practically you may have forgiven someone, but you have to wrestle with that continual forgiveness as you move forward in your Christian growth. And listen, as you process with God in prayer, and as you maybe get help from a, a, a more mature believer, some biblical counseling or some deeper discipleship, they will help you work through that. And as you progress, it, it will come up less in your mind. You're like, all of a sudden, you'll think about it, and it, it was like a year later. You're like, oh, I haven't thought about that in a year. And then at that point, you, you praise God because you're like, I'm getting better. And you, yeah, you got to stuff it again. You got to snuff it out. You got to put water on that flame again. But man, it's been a year since that came up. I forgot all about that. Praise God. It's a process. And that's okay. So, not an event, a one time thing, but a process, an ongoing. You got to keep going. You can't quit. Don't stop the process 
of forgiveness. Tim Lane says this. I think this is really helpful. How many of you have heard or said, I can forgive, but I can't forget? You said it? Have you heard it said? That's not a Bible verse. The Bible does not say forgive and forget. Do you know that? Tim Lane says forgiveness is not forgetting. And I I would agree with him. Now, I think we get this from a few passages. Here's one in particular. It's Isaiah 42, 25. God speaking to Isaiah says this. I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. I will not remember your sins. And then in Hebrews 12, uh, the, the writer to the Hebrews quotes Jeremiah 31, 34, which is the new covenant promise in Jeremiah. He says this, the, <clears throat> For I will be merciful towards their iniquities. This is those in the new covenant. And I will remember their sins no more. I will remember their sins no more. Now let me ask you a question. Let's do some theology here. If God is omniscient. That's one of his attributes. That means he knows everything there is to know. Imagine all the information on all the websites and in all the books in all the world. God knows it instantaneously without reading any of it. God knows how many stars there are in the universe right now and how many are expanding and blowing up and creating asteroids. He knows it all instantaneously without even having to count. Do you think that he forgets your sins or that he doesn't know them or he doesn't remember them? Or do you think that's saying something else? I think it's saying something else. I think what it's saying is he doesn't remember them in the sense that he doesn't count them against you anymore. He doesn't, Jesus Christ in eternity, look at his nail-scarred wrist and say, what was this this about? He, he knows why he died on the cross, for the sins of all his people. Right? The writer to the Corinthians, Paul, in 2 Corinthians 5.21, says, God made him, the Father, Jesus, made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He, he doesn't forget why he incarnated, became a man, lived perfectly, went to the cross, died, and was resurrected. He knows why, and he remembers. So what does it mean? It means that he doesn't count our sins against us. He does what Tim Lane was just instructing us to do. You remember the picture in the uh, Chronicles of Narnia? Edmund, right? He, he sins against his, his brothers and sisters, and he, his brother and sisters, and he goes to the white witch, and he tells them where they're at and what's going on, and he rats on them. Why? Because he wants the Turkish delight, and he wants to be king. And he sins against them. He betrays them. And Aslan goes, who's a representative of Christ, and he saves them. And you remember that scene specifically in the movie. You see them off in the corner, and, and you got Edmund and Aslan, and they're having a conversation together. And he's not yet been restored or reconciled to his family. So here's the traitor, and here's Jesus face to face. And he says, the past is the past. We're not going to talk about it anymore. Boom. That's a good picture of forgiveness. He remembers, yet he says, 
this is done. We've dealt with this. The past is the past. We're just not going to talk about it anymore. We're not going to bring it up anymore. And isn't that nice that when we see Jesus, I don't think he's going to go through the massive list that you've accumulated. He chooses to not count your sins against you. In fact, the Bible says this in a lot of places. One place I'd like to look very quickly and then we'll pray together is uh, Psalm 103, 1-5. I have it up here for you, so you can check it out with me. Uh, this first verse and second verse sounds like a Matt Redman song for some reason. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not His benefits. Uh, verse 3, Who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit. So verse 2 says, bless the Lord. Who? Oh, my soul. So the psalmist is talking to himself, that's self-talk, and what's he encouraging himself to do? To bless the Lord or to praise Him. He's, in a sense, fanning the flame of worship in his own soul. That's okay to do. Good self-talk is a good thing. Bless the Lord, oh, my soul. And what's he telling himself to do? Forget not all his benefits. That implies we're prone to forget. And that means we forget all of his benefits. There's a lot of benefits that we forget that we need to remind ourselves of constantly. Which one is he going to bring up? Verse 3, the forgiveness of God. Who forgives all, A-L-L, unqualified, all of them. All our iniquities. And who heals all your diseases. Who redeems your life from the pit. That word pit there means abyss, the grave, sheol, death. So what we know verse 3 does not mean is that all our diseases get healed in this life. Why, why doesn't it mean that? Well, because verse 4, the next verse, says, who redeems your life from the pit. It means when you die, then you will be finally healed and freed from all your diseases. But oftentimes in this life, we do have to suffer with a lot of diseases, and we do have to uh, pray for healing. Yes, I think it's appropriate. Ask God. If He wants to heal you, He will. But the promise in this verse is, you will have ultimate and final healing when, when he redeems your life from the pit. You will be resurrected to newness of life. Okay? Who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. So that's connected to verse 4. Who redeems your life from the pit. Who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. Verse 5. Who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Eagles soaring, flying, free, powerful. So God promises to forgive us all of our iniquities and finally, in newness of life, resurrection life, to heal all our diseases. We're promised to be renewed from the pit, the grave, the place of the dead, Sheol, the abyss, and he is going to crown us and has crowned us with what? Steadfast love and mercy. Mercy means you're not getting what you deserve. 
Right? Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Our sins deserve judgment, wrath, ultimately hell as payment for our sins. That's the debt we owe to God. But instead, He gives us mercy and steadfast love. That means it doesn't waver. It doesn't falter. It doesn't, it's not shaky. It's solid, steadfast. God's love for those who are in Christ is steadfast. You don't have to wonder, did I fall out of His love? Is he wrathful towards me now? No, because Jesus soaked up all the wrath of God in your place, and there's none left for you. If there was anything left in the atonement for you, that means Jesus could not have said, it is finished. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. There's no wrath left for the payment of sin for you. Steadfast love is all that's left for you. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't go through trials and tribulations and hard times. That's Hebrews 12, the discipline of God. Right? What loving father does not discipline his child? And the same is true for God. If we're his children, he's going to lovingly discipline us. Who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Now let's go to 10. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. That's good news. And I think that's what the he will remember our sins no more means. He does not deal with us according to our sins. What does that mean? He doesn't repay us according to our iniquities. We owe him. He should repay us with judgment, with hell, with wrath. But instead, he, re- he gives us forgiveness because we're united to Christ. Now, this verse 11 is fantastic. Listen to this. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. The fear him means love him, worship him. It's the earlier part of the Lord's Prayer. Hallowed be your name. May your name be kept holy. But we read that and we don't get the gist of it. So I want to help you just real quick get the gist of it. Okay, real quick. The sun... Our sun, the the closest star to us, is a yellow dwarf star. And it is 93 million miles from Earth. That's pretty far away. 93 million miles. So listen, you driving at 100 miles an hour. How many of you have ever driven that fast? I have. So, okay. A lot of you have. I got a ticket one time going over 115. And... It read by the police officer, reckless driving with speeds excessing 100 miles an hour because he couldn't clock me. He was so far behind me and I was going so fast. And by the time he caught up, I saw him in the rear view, pumped the brakes and I was down to the speed limit by the time he was right up on my taillights. And I was in Ohio, so I got no points and it was like a $150 ticket. Amazing. Grace. I wasn't a Christian. It wasn't last week. Stop judging me, Jackie. I saw it. I know. Yeah. So if you were driving 100 miles an hour, so think about this. You're in your car, and you are now allowed to drive 100 miles per hour. You know what that feels like. It's fast. Okay, so you driving at 100 miles an hour, it would take you 930,000 hours to get to the sun. Now, that's abstract still, so let's bring it down a little more. That means that you driving at 100 miles an hour, it would take you 38,750 days 
to get to the sun. That means 106 years. No pee breaks. You don't get to stop and get McDonald's or go to the restroom. That's driving straight through at 100 miles an hour. 106 years it would take you to get to the sun. I would bet none of us are even going to live that long. Now get this. Our sun is one star in the Milky Way galaxy. The Milky Way galaxy, there's estimated billions and billions of stars just like our sun. And then it's estimated that there are billions more galaxies just like ours, each themselves containing billions and billions of suns. Yet for you to get to the closest star, it would take you 106 years driving at 100 miles an hour nonstop. Oh my goodness. So this verse just said, listen, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, we don't even know how to get there in terms of numbers. The numbers are so abstract, it just doesn't even mean anything to us. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. Do you see the comparison here? And we, we just breeze over that verse. Yet, what, what is being said by that verse is massive, if you will think about it. Massive love. Uncomprehendable love. If that's true. And if it's not true, the whole Bible falls. The problem is, we don't own that promise. Probably because we don't believe that promise. It takes faith to look at that and think to yourself, God loves me that much. What do you think? Does he love you that much? I'm seeing heads nod. I want the weight of it to, to slam me to the ground. That's what I want. And, and the qualifier is this. There's only those who get this love, and it's those who fear him. Those who fear him tremble at his word. His word says that we are in desperate need of forgiveness, and the promise just before this is that he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. That's part of that love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, so that whoever believes in him, the whoever believes are the ones who get what's coming next. Whoever believes has eternal life. Steadfast love that stretches for an infinite amount of time. So the universe does have a limit. However, it's expanding. If you knew anything about space, it's moving outward. So now space is bigger than it was when I first started talking. But there is an, a finiteness to it. I say that backwards. There, there's a finiteness to space, yet we're going to be going on forever. And listen, the forgiveness will continue on forever. Like in, in 10 billion years, God's not going to look at Vince and say, Hey, Vince, you remember May 1st of 2017? I do. I know what you did. He's never going to bring it up. In a trillion years. See, he remembers our sins in the sense that he doesn't count them against us and he's not going to bring them back up to us again. It's beautiful, isn't it? 
It's so freeing to know that Jesus paid the full price for our sins such that he's not going to count our sins against us anymore. Verse 12 is another verse that kind of tries you to get tries to get you to get your head around this. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Transgressions mean sins, debts. So imagine the west and the east going like arrows and never stopping. They don't stop. Like beyond our coasts, west and east keep going. Beyond our planet, beyond the Milky Way, beyond the universe, they just keep going. And what the psalmist is trying to say here is that's how far God removes your transgressions from you. How? He put your transgressions on Christ. He took them off of you, put them on Jesus, and then poured out the full just punishment for them so that now you get to go free and receive steadfast love. And, and the, the, the full forgiveness is shown here as there's a never-endingness to the east and the west. That's how far God has taken your sins away. He's not going to bring it back up. And so for us, meditating on this, Thinking about this helps us to forgive others. My massive sin debt, God removed it as far as the east is from the west. How could I hold someone in debt even if they've wronged me severely? And if you're wrestling with it, that's okay. Wrestle with it with God and go through the process. The gospel will get bigger, Jesus will get bigger, and you will have power to forgive. As far as the east is from the west. 13, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Again, those who fear him are those who tremble at his word, believe what he says about us, believe what he says about Jesus in our place, and receives that. Whoever receives him, John 1, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. And so God here is pictured as a father who shows compassion to his children. We could be his children by receiving him, by believing in his name, Jesus. For he knows our frame. I love this. That means how we are formed. He remembers that we're dust. You remember God went into the dust like a, like a master sculptor and pulls out dirt. And he's like forming Adam, like a master artist. And, and so there's lifeless Adam in clay, dirt form, and he breathes into him the breath of life. And I just, I imagine like color and life and breath and eyes moving and heart pumping. But Adam came from dirt. And so you came from dirt because you're a son or daughter of Adam. A son or daughter of Eve. You remember Genesis 3.19, the, the curse on the man is, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Ash to ash, dust to dust. And God remembers, he knows that we're dust. In other words, he, he realizes who we are, how frail we are how susceptible we are to sin, how broken we are, and how broken other people are, and he has compassion on us. See the compassion? Compassion to those who fear him. Why? Because he knows our frame. He knows that we're just dust. He knows 
that we're weak and we need help. And what, what I want us to, to just think about when we think about this is God has shown to us massive, massive love in Christ beyond what you know and beyond what I know. I'm trying to swim to that depth. You ever try to swim down deep and all of a sudden the pressure hits your ears and the pressure hits your sinuses and it's, you keep going down and all of a sudden you start feeling the crushing pressure of the water? That's almost what happens as you try to just swim down into understanding God's love. I mean, Paul prayed for his churches to understand it. The, the height, the depth, the width, to know the love of God that what? Surpasses knowledge. What does that mean? That means you're never going to be able to understand this. Keep going deeper. And I think that some of these pictures are for us to try to get a handle on it. Try to get a handle. Let me read it again. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so does he remove our transgressions from us. And back to where we started. Now, understanding how great the love is and the forgiveness is, when we say forgive us our debts, they're forgiven. I've heard people say, you know, I'm afraid that I'm going to be in some sin right as I die and I'm going to go to hell. Do you ever hear that or think that? But see, what that presupposes is this, that your debts weren't paid in full and that you have to confess them in order to forgive them. And it implies that you remember all of your sins and you've confessed all your sins and you, knows the, you know the ones that are hidden. And like, You'll never be able to confess all of your sins and he forgives them all anyway. Isn't that good news? That you don't have to... God's not holding unconfessed sin against you and you're still in debt. They're all paid for. And they were all paid for 2,000 years ago, confessed or not confessed. The confession of sins has more to do with us and God than it does between God and us. Do you know what I mean by that? Here's what I mean by that. Um, If I have sinned against my wife and she doesn't know it, like, I cheated on her. I didn't, but let's use it as an example. She doesn't know it. Now, every time I see her, I know what I did. And she doesn't. And there's this wall. Now, it's different with that and God because God knows all things. But see, when we sin against God and it's unconfessed and it's in our face and we remember it, and it's, there's a barrier in that relationship. Yet God, on from his end, has fully and freely forgiven you. And you remember the prodigal son. As soon as the son started walking back to the father, the father's running at him. So it's us. It, it, in a sense, it's for our benefit that we confess. Amen? And, and what helps us is, as we also have forgiven our debtors. So we remember that God has forgiven us and loves us despite us, despite our sin, and so that gives us power, energy, ability to forgive 